Hey, it's me, Ed, here, back again with another episode of That's Helpful. Before we get into it, I just want to flag that if you're enjoying the podcast, you can support me and keep us ad-free via Patreon for as little as $5 a month. That's less than the price of a coffee. Check it out by the link in the podcast description, and if you could leave me a little review wherever you're listening, I would be so grateful. Now, today, sleep is essential to good health. We know that. But it's not always as easy as just getting tucked in and letting it wash over you. So many of us struggle with our sleep, whether or not we find we're waking up or sleeping super lightly. So what can we do to help ourselves get a truly great night's sleep? Well, Dr. Eric Prather is the man you want to speak to. He's a sleep scientist and the author of The Sleep Prescription, a book full of the solutions he's found to work in his clinic. Thank you so much for joining me, Eric. I really appreciate it. I'm I'm really grateful to be here. Yeah, I'm so looking forward to this because I know so many people who struggle with this. I mentioned it there, but just how important is good quality sleep to our health? <laughs> I mean, it's like the thing, right? Yeah, like, right. It's, it's like uh, it's a pillar of good health, right? So you know, next to nutrition, next to exercise, uh, sleep is right there, and we know from one well, like our personal experience and like how good we feel or how bad we feel. Based on the type of sleep we get, but kind of over time, kind of, you know, people that are shorted on sleep are really at risk for like a whole host of negative mental and physical health outcomes. So, you know, certainly it's been associated like insufficient amounts of sleep has been associated with increased risk for cardiovascular disease, cardiometabolic conditions like type 2 diabetes. And we're also learning more about um, the role that sleep might play in the development of kind of brain related aging conditions like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. And so, you know, it the evidence is just kind of mounting that it's so critical. And then on mental health, right, we, you know, sleep, insomnia uh, is often co-occurs with a whole bunch of, of kind of psychiatric conditions, in particular depression. And so, you know, it's something that we, you know, is so critical for us. But luckily, there are some things that we can do to try to going to put us in the best opportunity to have a good night's sleep. And how many people do struggle with sleeping? Oh, goodness. I mean, ask, you know, it (laughs) it outnumbers the people that do sleep well, I think, uh, at least across the life course. But, uh, you know, I mean, you know, if you think about insomnia, uh, about a third of the population reports kind of difficulty sleeping, either kind of falling asleep, staying asleep, uh, the quality of their sleep. And you know the 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 challenges with sleeping change as we get older, right? As we kind of move into the fifth, sixth, seventh decade of life, um, you know, our sleep changes, and so that you know it seems to become more fragmented. We have to wake up in the middle of the night more often, right, to use the bathroom or what have you, um, but also kind of the architecture changes, and so that can change our relationship with sleep, you know, especially if we're thinking about like, oh gosh, when I was a teenager, Mm. like I could sleep all the time and that can be distressing. And that distress can often feed kind of, uh, you know, insomnia as, you know, your confidence around sleep begins to degrade. Yeah. And one of the things that you're passionate about is like this idea of sleep inequality, the idea that through different subsections of society, it's not necessarily a level playing field when it comes to getting a good night's sleep, right? Yeah, I mean, it's true. I am very passionate about um, kind of understanding and addressing sleep disparities, right? Certain 
populations, particularly individuals that are minority populations, marginalized populations, uh, individuals that are kind of low uh, socioeconomic status, they often live in places where sleep is harder to get, right? They Um. work jobs where sleep is harder to get. Um, And so the opportunity for sleep, for safety, which we need to be able to fall asleep, um, is not evenly distributed across the population. And we think, and the and the data is accruing to support this, that kind of those sleep disparities might be driving some of the health disparities that we see across various populations. And, you know, so I really try to frame kind of sleep and sleep health is really a, a social justice issue that everybody yeah. kind of deserves the opportunity to rest and the opportunity to sleep uh, and to sleep well. Yeah, absolutely. I hadn't thought about that before until I heard you speak about it, but it's really true. So what are some of the things that we can do to create the perfect environment for sleep? Yeah, I mean, you know, we all are built to sleep, right? Like it's such a natural thing for us. Yeah. Um, You know, all of the species that we've studied across science do something that looks like sleep or rest. Mm-hmm. And so it's been conserved across millennia. It's like so biologically embedded in in us. Um, but, you know, so what do we do? Like, how do we get it? And for why, why for some, is it so hard, right? Mm. And there's a lots of different things that go into ensuring uh, a good night's sleep. But I, I mean, I, I think one of the things that I, I wanted to point out and what in, in your question is you said, you know, you use the word perfect. Now, I don't think there is a perfect, right? I think that's part of the problem is like we're often striving for perfect. We're like bad nights of sleep are really natural, right? Like it's part of the lived experience. And it's it's often those concerns about those bad nights, which can create an environment that kind of begins to degrade your sleep. But like, of course, there are things that we do need, right? So, um, you know, for, you know, thinking about like the environment in which we sleep, right? I mean, obviously, we sleep better um, in the dark. Uh, we sleep better in quiet places. Uh, a cooler temperature uh, seems to be really important for facilitating sleep. And then kind of a, an environment that's safe for us, right? Because sleep is kind of one of those things. I mean, you mentioned in the in the beginning, in the intro, that it kind of washes over you. It's this letting go, right? Which in a lot of cases may not be the most adaptive thing to do, right? To like kind of lose consciousness, but we we need to do it. And so... Uh, kind of turning down um, any kind of vigilant signals and enhancing that feeling of safety uh, allows those things to happen. Um, but, you know, beyond kind of the sleep environment, there's obviously things that can also get in the way around substances that we might use close to bedtime, right? Caffeine, kind of the most popular drug on earth, is it has a half-life of about six hours. So that means if you consume a double espresso at 4 p.m., a single espresso is still in your system at 10 p.m., right? So that that might make it hard to sleep. You know, another one, alcohol, right? Like alcohol, it's been used across time as like a, a something that's kind of soporific that, you know, helps us get to sleep. And it's true, it does that, right? It activates that GABAergic system in our brain, that relaxation system, but it can really impact our sleep architecture, it turns out that it it suppresses REM sleep. So that's kind of the dreaming sleep that we typically do in the second half of the night. And what that means when we suppress that, we actually get an extra dose of deep sleep, but 
there's a cost that you get this rebound of kind of like REM sleep kind of like snapping back and that leads to some fragmentation. At the same time, you know, your brain notices that alcohol is leaving your system, right? So like you drink alcohol before bedtime, it helps you get sleepy, but your brain notices when it kind of begins to fade out of the system, leading to kind of potentially increased anxiety, but certainly more wakefulness and giving people this experience of a poor quality amount of sleep. Um, and so, I, I mean, I can get into the other things that people can do, but I, I also realize that I just keep talking. So, <laughs> <laughs> No, no, that's so interesting. And I've heard you talk about that coffee thing and the alcohol is so interesting because I wasn't really aware on how that impacted um, on our sleep. When we are thinking about, um, you know, creating a good environment, not perfect for sleep, how much attention should we pay to like our natural sleep cycles and our circadian rhythms? You know, we hear that some people are early people, some people are late people. Should we pay attention to that or what, what should that inform how we sleep? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, our circadian preference, right? This, this tendency to want to be a night owl mm. or kind of an early bird or morning lark is what we call it. I mean, that's a real thing. And so a lot of that is like genetically driven. Like there are yeah. people that are night owls. They've been, their whole life is a night owl, right? And like, they, you know, they're kind of living in a, in a society that maybe makes that harder, right? Because they have to like get up to go to work or go to school or what have you. Um, you know, I think in a, in a, in a perfect world, people can, um, you know, pay a lot of attention to their circadian rhythm, kind of know what their kind of natural when they feel sleepy, when they want to wake mm. up. Uh, unfortunately, many of us don't have that choice, especially if you're on the extreme end. But, um, you know, a, a finely tuned sleep system is one that accounts for that circadian rhythm. I mean, the good news is, you know, we, we are adaptable. I mean, at least in, this, in the United States, we've historically had, um, you know, daylight savings time where we shift by an hour during the year and then shift back. And it takes a few days for people to kind of get used to it, but they can. The same mm. thing is when you travel and you travel yeah. through time zones. And that feeling of jet lag is that misalignment between your circadian rhythm and the the place that you're at. And so, but you know, you eventually adapt. And so, you know, the, the idea is to certainly listen to it. If you can't, you know, if you're on the more extreme end and it's too hard, um, you know, there are ways to have some adaptations to that. Um, or potentially shift it um, to to be more in line with what you want. But, you know, ultimately for many, it's kind of like genetically driven and you just have to kind of work through it. Yeah. And so, you know, often what we'll hear is like some people um, can get to sleep and then they have like a period of two hours in the night where they can't, can't sleep and then they'll be able to sleep again. There's so much focus on this idea that we should get eight hours of uninterrupted sleep. Is that true or, or can we get good quality sleep in these like different sections? These bursts, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, and, and I mean, you know, there's, you know, I think it, it crops up, you know, through like news cycles around kind of these kind of two bursts of sleep, you know, what yeah. has historically been done. And, and I mean, I think there is, you know, a lot of truth to that. Uh -huh. um, you know, I mean, I think, you know, if you if you think about kind of agrarian societies or before there was, you know, indoor electricity, right? You know, people were kind of more tied, more or less tied to the sun. Yeah. Um, and but, you know, that period of time from like sundown to sun up in most places in the in on the globe is longer than kind of an mm. eight hour period. Right. So if you went to sleep like we can humans can only make so much sleep like you yep. can't 
And, and and it's a common problem like among people with insomnia where they spend so much time in bed because they're like waiting for sleep, but you can only make so much. Yeah. And so, you know, this idea that you're able to kind of do it in chunks, often with that are kind of in line with how we understand cycles of sleep, right? So like we yeah, typically right. have sleep cycles that are about like 90 minutes, give or take. And so you, maybe you have two of those and then you have this break. And, and that may not inherently be bad if you can still get a sufficient amount of sleep, right? Because yeah. ultimately we know that p- humans do better with a certain amount of sleep, like the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, other international societies, re- re- you know, recommend at least seven hours of sleep to maintain adult health. And so, you know, if you can still get that and you feel good and you're not distra- distressed in between, um, that might be okay. I mean, the same is true for naps, right? Like, I mean, if you yeah. think about siesta cultures, um, you know, they end up kind of eating dinner later. They might get shorter amounts of sleep at night because we could only make so much. And so they've kind of broken it up in that way. And for them and for many, that can be healthy and, you know, do the job. It's just often society doesn't allow for that kind of flexibility. Yeah, absolutely. And I've heard you talk about sleep in terms of like um, the balloon metaphor that you use. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you know, and a lot of it is tied to kind of how sleep is regulated, right? So we mm-hmm. already talked about the circadian rhythm, very, yeah. very important. Um, and then the other uh, kind of driver of how our sleep is regulated is called our homeostatic sleep drive. Mm. And it's a really simple idea. I mean, it it's basically your sleepiness kind of need for sleep builds up the longer you're awake. And so I think about it kind of like a balloon, like you mm. mentioned, right? So you like wake up in the morning, your balloon is flat, and then you go th- throughout the day and it kind of builds up and builds up and builds up and builds up a sleepiness until it gets to an optimal amount. And then you feel the feel those sleepiness cues. You go to sleep and it kind of drains that sleepiness out. And I mean, you know, like a good example of, um, you know, where it can go, uh, you know, not go as well is if, uh, you know, when people nap, right? Mm. So they nap and and so it actually in the middle of the day, they might steal some of that sleepiness out of your balloon. Right. And so then you have to stay <clears throat> stay up later to get the same effect. Right. And so, you know, that's, you know, and and so that balloon actually plays a really important role in like how we get people sleep back on track. Yeah. Um, you know, oftentimes we try to get that balloon really, really, really big so that they're so sleepy that like the anxiety about trying to go to sleep, any of the concerns, ruminations that might come up. Um, are less powerful because that balloon is just so big. You have no <laughs> choice but to like kind of crawl to the bed and get in and be reacquainted with kind of the experience of of rest and relaxation and res- restoration that you get from sleep. Yeah, absolutely. And so on napping, is yep. it always a bad idea to nap? I heard this thing and it was like, if you um, fall asleep, if you like lay down and go and have a nap, if you fall asleep within five minutes, then it means like you really needed a nap and you were maybe a little bit <laughs> yeah. sleep deprived. Like, is yeah. there any logic or sense in that? Or like, what, what's the deal with napping? Yeah, I mean, there is some sense in that. And in fact, in the laboratory, we use tools to actually see people's sleepiness by, say, you know, seeing how quick they can nap or seeing yeah, in a right. dark room if they're able to stay awake, right? Yeah. I mean, it's like... And, and that can be challenging when you kind of have all this sleepiness on board. Um, it, you know, naps in and of themselves are not bad things, right? Yeah. Like we know that napping can be effective in increasing alertness. It can help with, you know, it's been linked to memory and cognition. Um, 
But, you know, it, it is something that is is worth considering in, in, in kind of the way that you describe it, that like sometimes it can be a symptom, right? Yeah. It can be like, why do I need this? Like, why am I so overwhelmed? Like, why am I sleepy while I'm driving? Yeah. And there can be things that are that are hiding there that yeah. need some attention. So some people have um, something called obstructive sleep apnea, which is which can really fragment someone's sleep and leave them feeling so sleepy throughout the day that can be addressed. And so that that need to nap can be a signal there. Mm-hmm. Um, for some people, a, a need to nap is like a, you know, might be a symptom of kind of something going on in your body, right? Like you think uh-huh. about the last time you were really sick, right? We spend a lot of time sleeping and potentially napping because your body's trying to repair kind of what's what's going on in there. Um, and, you know, and th- so the one thing that I would suggest about napping, though, is, to, you know, you don't want to do it too long. Mm. And and the reason for that is because if you go kind of longer than 20, 30 minutes, you actually run the risk of, um, one, it, it kind of steals a lot out of your balloon, right? Mm, so you got to yeah. kind of keep that in mind. But also, um, people tend to kind of drop into deep sleep. Yeah. Right? They might, they might and, and when you try to get out of that, it can feel terrible. Yeah. Like way worse than it felt before you had to take the nap. And yeah. it's something called a sleep inertia. And it's just like, it's, it's you know, it's just in it ill-advised because it just can ruin your day. And, yeah. you know, just, you know, in the future, hopefully not not do that. But, you know, naps, um, you know, some, it's, gosh, when I, when my kids were little, that was like the best, the thing I looked the most <laughs> forward to. <laughs> you know? I bet. So, yeah. A good nap is a very good thing. And what about yeah. this idea of, um, you know, if we have a really crappy night's sleep one night or we stay out late or we have a bit too much to drink and we have a rubbish night's sleep, this idea that sleep debt builds up, is that a true yeah. thing? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Sleep debt can certainly build up. I mean, you know, your body needs so much sleep. Uh, and I mean, you know, I think about it in the, in the acute setting, right? Like you have a bad, like like you described, like you have a bad night of sleep. Yeah. Um, the good news is that your body will compensate, right? Like it yep. will, you'll have a better night's sleep the following night in most cases, right? Yep. And so, you know, you'll drop more quickly into deep sleep and you'll you'll be able to kind of gain back some of that. The truth is though, you don't gain all of it back, right? So like if yeah, we right. bring people into the laboratory and we deprive them of eight hours of sleep and then the next night they're able to sleep, they don't sleep for 16 hours, right? Mm. They, you know, it's there's there's thought to be a potential cost of lost sleep. And we know this from kind of, you know, like larger scale studies measuring sleep debt. And they usually do it with like weekdays versus weekends, right? So like most people tend to sleep in a little bit on the weekend or get more yeah. sleep on the weekend, except when they stay out late and those yeah. other things that are part of life and and you wouldn't want to necessarily give up. But, um, you know, when there's that difference between kind of what you get on weekdays and what you get on weekends, um, that difference in kind of habitual sleep duration seems to predict kind of a lot of the negative health outcomes that um, we see um, with short sleep duration. So there, there seems to be kind of a risk in the the timing and the the you know the the debt that accrues that that may be challenging to overcome. Though I mean, thankfully there are like other things you can do for your health that might help to offset it, right? Like if you're yeah. you're staying up late. Uh, or you're getting less sleep because you've been exercising extra. Like maybe that, maybe that, you know, and we don't really know, yep. right? Like that's yeah, that's still kind of a, a good bar topic to to have, like yeah. which is better for you, you know? I, but I have, yeah, I have definitely done that before when I've worked out like after 6.30 in the evening. Oh yeah. Then it's like impossible to get to sleep, right? Whereas it, working out earlier in the day helps you sleep longer. 
You know, I mean, yeah, that that's true. And I mean, it's, it's interesting because it seems to be kind of this like bimodal thing. Like some yeah. people, you know, some people that I talk to and come to our clinic, they, they swear that if, you know, if they work out really hard at night, they're like exhausted and they oh, like yeah. exhaust themselves and then fall asleep. But like, you're right for most people or many people anyway, it's like very activating, right? Like, yeah, you, I'm like, why you need to? Yeah, right, right. And that's, <laughs> you know, that's a lot to do with like kind of your sympathetic nervous system is really revved up. It probably has something to do with the type of exercise that people do too, right? Like yep, it's not yep. all the same, but you know, for most people, right, like doing it in the morning, at least you know, four hours or so before bed is probably kind of where you want to cut it off and and uh, and to ensure that it doesn't get in the way. But, you know, yeah. the, I think exercise is like a really kind of healthy way to become like your own sleep scientist. Like what works for you, right? Like this yeah. is something that you can change in your life. You know, maybe you'll get a better night's sleep. Maybe it'll be worse, but like then you'll know and, you know, and to get the exercise. Yeah, yep, absolutely. And is it possible to get too much sleep? Too much sleep. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a really interesting question. Um, mainly because we're we're still trying to figure it out. It's funny yeah. like for how much we've like studied sleep. And it, it's a kind of a, a young field, you know, oh. as science goes. But that's one that's like been re really challenging. And so because if you kind of, you know, look at surveys of how much people sleep people get, there's usually this U-shaped relationship that like people on the short, short end to mm -hmm. be at risk for things. And that's what we've been talking about. But also people on the really, really long end, right? Like people that are getting like 12 hours sleep. And this is for adults, right? Like we, yeah. as when we're younger, we need more sleep. But um, kind of when you're outside of that, that normal range on the long end, people do seem to be at risk for things too. And, and, you know, there's, it's not exactly clear why, though, you know, people speculate that, you know, perhaps in those studies, um, there's kind of some unmeasured confounding, meaning there's like variables that are contributing to both long sleep and the disease outcome, right? Yeah. And so that could be like some kind of illness that they didn't measure, right? Like like we talked about, you know, when when you don't feel well, you might sleep more. Yeah. And so that could could be related. The other one is uh depression. Yeah. So people with depression, so there's a there's a, you know, a subgroup of people with depression that have what's called hypersomnia. So they sleep all the time. But yeah. also Oftentimes, people who have depression may spend a lot of time in bed, um, mm. you know, and they may not be sleeping, but they're kind of like laying or like escaping. And in these surveys, we think that perhaps some of those people have depression and are reporting it as sleep, even though it's actually kind of like time in bed. Yeah, right. And we know that depression is associated with a lot of these health outcomes, too. And so, you know, I mean, we, we don't know for sure. You know, but but that that seems to be kind of two of the possible reasons why long sleep duration is associated with disease risk. Yeah, interesting. And so um, is it a wise idea to keep a regular bedtime? Interesting. Yeah. So, uh, you know, as a, a, a sleep medicine person and people that help insom people with insomnia on a regular basis, I steer away from the idea of having a regular bedtime. Mm -hmm. Um, and I focus on a like a standardized wake up time. Yeah, so right. If you had to do one thing, you want to do a wake up time like seven days a week. In part for two reasons: one, it like sets in line your circadian rhythm, mm -hmm. and it kind of it standardizes that balloon starting yeah. to fill up. Right. So those two key things, and the reason why we stay away from necessarily recommending a standard bedtime is because if you keep a standard wake time, one you'll probably end up getting sleepy around the same time each night. 
Yeah. Right. Like it's like, it, you know, we only use a certain amount of energy per day. Like you'll, you'll start to get sleepy around the same time. And as long as you prior prioritize sleep, you'll probably end up with like a similar bedtime. Yeah. But um, if you have insomnia or you have trouble sleeping, it can be really distressing if you're trying to stick to a standard bedtime, right? Like I tell someone a sleep doc, okay, well now you have to be in bed at 1030 and like at 10 o'clock, they're just like not sleepy. Yeah. And then as it gets to 1015, they're like, oh my God, like it's, I'm supposed to be asleep in t- 1030. I don't know how it's going to happen. And then you know, it gets 1029 and they're like so anxious Yeah. and it's like, forget it. You're not, not going to be sleeping anytime soon. And so, you know, I just careful in, in kind of providing that because, again, like sleep isn't something that you make happen. Mm. Sleep is something that comes to you, right? It's the absence of doing. And it's mm. magical in that way. But it's also, you know, it can be, you can put a lot of pressure on yourself to do something that you just, do, it's, you're not responsible for, mm. right? You can put things in place to be in the best, best opportunity, right? Kind of mm. put yourself in the best possible opportunity to have a good night's sleep but things happen in the world like you know there could be you know a fire alarm in your building that goes off there could be like a work email that you didn't want to see but it like popped up right before going to bed you could get like in an argument with your partner any of those things and you know you you can't you can't control everything all you can do is kind of put yourself in the best position and let sleep work naturally and so if we do, um, you know, get into bed and we find that we just can't get to sleep, sleep's not happening, do we lie there? Do we get up? Like, what's the best thing to do when we can't sleep? Yes. Yeah, so, so right. You, first of all, don't get in bed unless you're sleepy. Yeah. Right, that's the first thing. But if, yeah, if you run into a situation where you're, you know, your mind starts worrying and uh-huh. ruminating about things and, you know, oftentimes people then begin to worry about the fact that they're not sleeping, oh. um, <laughs> then you really want to kind of remove yourself from the situation. And this can be challenging. Like no one loves doing this, but there's a really important reason that when people spend a lot of time awake in bed, not sleeping, they actually begin to fracture their relationship with the bed. So the bed Mm. and the bedroom, but the bed in particular is a critical environmental trigger for bringing on sleepiness. Like there's lots of things in our environment that our brain is constantly taking in to tell it kind of tell our bodies and mind what's happening next. And around bedtime, the bed serves as that purpose. So the bed is this incredible trigger. And what happens is that, you know, for people who don't have sleep problems, they may be sleepy before they get in bed, but when they get in bed, it's like a hammer comes down on them and yep. it like brings on sleepiness. When people have trouble sleeping, when they've had like nights of, in, you know, off and on or chronically where they have bad nights of sleep, the reverse happens that the bed becomes a place of distress, uh-huh. of anxiety, of a busy mind. It's something called a conditioned response, right? Yep. Now you're conditioned to wake up um, and and oftentimes I'll have patients that say, you know, I was feeling really sleepy. Then I got in bed and my brain just kind of turned on. Yeah. And and that that means that you have this conditioned response. And so what you need to do is begin to break that relationship. You need to kind of get out of bed for, you know, give yourself a chance to fall asleep. But if it's not happening, say 20 minutes, you want to get out of bed. You want to go s- somewhere. Don't turn on all the lights. Don't like start doing your laundry. Don't <laughs> do your taxes, whatever. You want to kind of sit quietly kind of um, maybe read, maybe watch some TV that you've seen previously. Uh, not things that are engaging for your brain, but kind of, yeah. kind of promote relaxation until you begin to feel sleepy again and then try to get back in bed. And 
in the beginning, especially when people have chronic insomnia, this is really hard. Like they get out of bed, they do this, they feel sleepy, they get back in bed, their brain wakes up. They have to do it again, get out of bed. But over time, you're kind of repairing this sleepiness with the bed and kind of rebuilding this really important relationship. Um, And so, you know, for people where this is happening for them, uh, it's a really tried and true technique to kind of help kind of reacquaint your body with the sleepiness that it needs to get from the bed. Yeah, absolutely. When I heard you talk about that before, I know you like to watch The Office when you go to sleep, which I do too. I have to ask yeah, you, so UK weird. or US? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> there's more episodes of the US one. <laughs> that's so, true. That's true. Uh, yeah, it is funny. I don't know. I, 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 you know what's funny is that like that has resonated with a lot of people. Like I don't know why that is. <laughs> Because it's so mindless, right? It's not stressful. Like, you know what's going to happen. Nothing bad ever happens. It's just you can switch off. Right. Totally. Yeah. I mean, it's (laughs) so funny. I mean, I I guess everybody else has, you know, people have their other things. But like, I feel like that one, you know, just really hits the mark and and kind of producing this feeling of relaxation (laughs) and and just like. It's so weird, but yes, yes, it's true. Especially when you know you you have this amazing research and everything, um, you know that we've been through is so incredible. And the one thing people pick up on is watch the office. <laughs> I know, I know. Infuriating for you, I'm sure. <laughs> I, I think if people are sleeping better, I don't care how they get there. Fair, Especially fair. if it's not not uh not through medications, then we're doing something yeah. right. So on that, one of the things that, you know, I've heard about, like when I travel and if I want to get over the jet lag, sometimes I'll take melatonin. What what do you yeah. think about melatonin? Is that a good idea? Is there evidence that it works? Yeah. So um, melatonin is really, uh, has been shown to be effective for things like jet lag, right? Uh-huh. That's actually, um, you know, where it, the evidence base is, is kind of strongest. Um, yeah. But oftentimes people will, especially when you go from west to east, that's that's where people use it the most and um and but it's often taken uh you know at a much smaller dose than people tend to take it at so you know we mm-hmm. recommend or the recommendation is to take a like 0.5 milligrams of melatonin oh, wow. about about five hours before you want to be asleep because it really oh. it's in the place that you're at uh versus like taking it right before bed right like it's yeah um, that's so, so i have like 10 milligram tablets and i take them right yeah. before bed i'm like this isn't working <laughs> yeah 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 well i mean and the idea is like it's it's a, you know you take it and it basically signals to your brain like oh i'm supposed to make melatonin now right it right. like you know you still rely on kind of like your endogenous levels but it kind of kickstarts it and so we are yeah, right. when you're kind of in a time zone that's east it you know it's to get you falling asleep a little bit earlier um yeah yep. and you know for now for insomnia or like taking right for a bedtime that that's where the data is not uh particularly strong at least in kind of the clinical trial space uh-huh. I mean, that being said like i meet lots of people that swear by it they swear by lots of things yeah. but you know we don't really yeah. know like there's also an you know it's it's funny you know the placebo piece or the psychological dependence of these medications is incredibly strong like yeah um, you know and I mean, a good example is like how often I meet someone who is taking a really high dose of like, say, Ambien or like Zolpidem, yep. like the, the 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 medication, and they'll say things like, "Yeah, it just didn't work last night," but it's like it's the same 
a medica- <laughs> like it's the medicine is happening. It's not like it's not doing what it's supposed to do, but like in the same way that things that aren't necessarily effective can be helpful in facilitating sleep. We also have uh, the ability to kind of overcome those things, right? Yeah. Like our, our brain, our, our nervous system, our mind is, is very, uh, uh, can work in both directions. And, you know, we real like, and, and for things like, uh, you know, maybe melatonin or some of these other things, it may kind of give people, you know, a, some piece of uh, experiencing something that's facilitate sleep but like often it's the ability to know that you took something and then kind of Mm. allow you to let go and let sleep happen more naturally maybe that idea of ritual too right i so rituals are so important for sleep Mm. um you know it and it's all about from my perspective like signaling your body like what's going to happen like readying yourself and so whether it's um, you know, I mean, there's obviously some variations of rituals that probably aren't effective, like, you know, super active dancing and engagement, like right before sleep is probably like <laughs> not going to, even if you did that every night, like maybe that would be yeah. hard. Uh, yeah. But, you know, so like most of the things are kind of like quiescent. They are helpful to allow you to sleep. Um, they facilitate kind of relaxation and upregulating that parasympathetic mm. nervous system that's so important. And, you know, all of those things, um, but, you know, doing them consistently, right? It's like so important for consistency. Um, And so that's why kind of building out this time to allow you to kind of wind down is so important. Um, You know, like, you know, being beginning to signal to your body that, you know, we're transitioning, we're moving from, we're closing the chapter on the day and allowing yourself to wind down. It's the winding down, but it's also kind of the the fact that you're intentional about it. Um, I think that's a really important piece to um, kind of protecting and ensuring uh, the opportunity for a good night's sleep. Yeah, absolutely. And so uh, you think that we should be keeping a, a sleep diary. Why is that? And what's the best way to go about doing that? Yeah, I mean, so so... You know, it's not necessarily that everybody needs to keep a sleep diary. Um, yeah, it's, yeah. it's, but I mean, if you're trying to work on your sleep, um, yeah. you know, it's really helpful to kind of dig in to the, to the data so that you can know kind of when you do one thing, this happens. And when you do another thing, this happens. I mean, you know, you know, as I mentioned earlier, like keeping a consistent wake time is part and probably the first thing that people should start doing. And so by keeping a sleep diary, you can document this. That, you know, mm. and, it, and it doesn't have to be anything high tech, like there are plenty of sleep diaries, probably apps online and that kind of stuff. Or you can just do it on a piece of paper, like just marking like what time you went to bed, how long it took you to fall asleep, how many times did you wake up in the middle of the night in total? How many minutes were you awake? And then what time did you wake up? And then what time did you get out of bed is completely sufficient um, for yeah. that kind of thing. Um, but and then and then, you know, in our clinic, we use this sleep diary data to actually set people's bedtimes because in in an effort to really uh, increase that that sleep drive, that balloon, um, we often will use an individual's data to know like how much we might, might want to push their bedtime later as a way yeah, of trying right. to consolidate their sleep, right? And like that's really uh, uh, based on the idea that, um, you know, people like a consolidated amount of sleep 
where it's not broken up, like you don't spend a lot of time outside of bed, you know, in bed, not sleeping either in the front end or in the middle of the night, that that big bolus of sleep just feels so much better subjectively. Like it feels more restorative than even a little more sleep, but broken up. Right. So what we do is we kind of, you know, push on someone's sleep drive, put their bedtime later. Um, It often kind of squeezes out these kind of awakenings in the front end or during the night. And then people, you know, begin to have a more efficient, more consolidated amount of sleep. And then as we follow them over time and look at their sleep diaries, we'll begin to slowly move their bedtimes a little bit earlier, a little bit earlier until we find out kind of what is really kind of their most efficient amount of sleep. And it's often their bedtime is often ends up being a little bit later than they thought it would be. Right. That it's like people might be going to bed earlier, having this fragmented sleep. And um, and so we can kind of get the same amount of sleep or more consolidated by moving it later. And it just becomes more reliable over time. Yeah, absolutely. And so when should we, um, you know, these are all wonderful things to do and really help. But when when should we know when we need to get some professional help and when we actually have a problem that needs actual, you know, medical help? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. And I mean, you know, so right, you can use these tips and tricks, right? Like the, yeah. the, like the book that 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 I wrote um, is really a distillation of cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, which is the mm-hmm. first line treatment for treating insomnia. Um, yep. And so I would absolutely, if you are having kind of chronic insomnia, um, you might want to, you know, you can try these things, but, you know, you might want to seek out um, a professional, like talk to your kind of... Uh, you know, primary care or kind of like your first line doctor. And, but I think the important thing is you don't want to move straight into medications, right? Like there are like the behavioral things that we do to regulate our sleep are as effective as medications, if not more. And Mm. it teaches you the skills to actually address the underlying problem. Like sleep medications, um, you know, just mask the problem because as soon as you stop taking them, you're going to have the same kind of level of insomnia. And yeah, so, you know, absolutely. if, if it, yeah, so if you're, I mean, if you're, if you're feeling very run down during the day, your sleep is really disturbed at night and it's been going on for some time, you, you certainly want to try to uh, seek out some, some potential medical help. And, you know, it may be that you have something else other than insomnia, like obstructive sleep apnea, and you can undergo yep. a sleep study um, and then get that addressed because that's one of the few things that we really know how to address well if people, you know, a- adhere to the treatment. Yeah, absolutely. And so if there's any one thing that people remember, you know, if they're not at that extreme end, if they just really want to boost their sleep and get more consistent um, quality sleep, what's the one thing that we should all keep in mind? Yeah, um, I mean, I think so for anybody who wants to improve their sleep, the two things are kind of the consistency piece, right? So the wake Mm -hmm. time, which, you know, is kind of like, it's like boring as that is like, and I admit that it's like a boring <laughs> thing to tell people um, and no one wants to hear it. Like, they're like, what do you mean? Yeah, yeah. I'm not doing that. <laughs> uh, but I mean, if you if you really want to work on your sleep, like that's the thing, like that's where you would start. Yep. But then the other mm-hmm. is really kind of ensuring this, making it a priority. And I think that's like more of like a meta thing. Like it's like, you know, what you get from your sleep, like one, it's just important to have that transition and that rest, right? Like it serves a function beyond just getting into the next day. Like sleep itself plays an important role. And actually 
sets you up for kind of a better day the next day, right? Like yeah. we know when people don't get the sleep they need, um, or let's say a, a different way, like when people sleep well, they're kind of better. They're we're like the best versions of ourselves, right? Yeah. Like we're more productive, we're more creative, we're better partners, we're better parents, um, we're better easy able to deal with stress. Um, you know, we 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 think sharper. Like there's lots of benefits in addition to it kind of helping our long-term health. And so, you know, ensuring that it you carve it into your life in the same way that you would carve an exercise or yeah. kind of other things that are meaningful to you um, because it it's it's not something we're not, humans are not built to just kind of like kind of shut down like a computer. We need that time for transition and we need to prioritize this thing that we're supposed to spend a third of our life doing. Like if we're going to spend that much time doing it, we want to do it well, right? We don't want to be yeah. fighting it for most of that time, right? So um, I think, you know, sleep is is just such a fundamental to our being. And I, you know, I, I hope that people begin and they are like appreciating how much it can be helpful for their health. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Fathar. I really appreciate it. I've really enjoyed chatting to you and I've learned so much. I'm sure everybody else will find it super helpful too. Thank you. Absolutely. Dr. Eric Prather is a sleep scientist and the author of The Sleep Prescription. It's a book full of the solutions that he's found to work when it comes to sleep. You can find the link in the show notes because there is so much more to this. There's so much more information in the book, so you should definitely check it out. Don't forget, you can join support us on the Patreon and leave me a review wherever you're listening to your podcast. I'm super grateful. I'm Ed Stott, and I sincerely hope that's helpful. <laughs>